0: Director Ken Russell and producer Robert Stigwood have made a film of Tommy and assembled some of the greatest names in music and the cinema. Tommy by The Who and based on the rock opera by Peter Townsend, stars Anne Margaret, Oliver Reed, Jack Nicholson, Elton John, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner, Roger Daltrey as Tommy. Don't miss Tommy, the film. Your senses will never be the same again.
1: It's ticklish business, any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everybody. It is Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen. Samantha's not with us this week which I'm not taking personally because it's only my birthday episode, but she is here in spirit and in her place outside of the annoying fire alarm chirp I have joining us. I have the amazing author of TCM's new book, Rock on Film, the movies that rock the big screen, author Fred Goodman. Fred, how are you?
0: Nice to be here, Kristen.
1: I could not think of anyone better to talk about the movie that I demanded we did on this episode, 1975's <laughs> Tommy directed by Ken Russell. Your book is talking about so many different movies, including Tommy, movies that range from stuff like Blackboard Jungle to A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. I'm curious how, what would you want to write about rock and roll in film? It's such an interesting and fun topic that I'm surprised I haven't read more about that. What brought this book to you?
0: I'm interested in both, obviously, music and film. A project like this is really the meeting of those two pieces for me. But also having been a music editor for many years, I know that there hasn't been a film about rock and roll movies in about 25 or 30 years. The last one was written by Marshall Crenshaw, the musician. It's been out of print for a long time. You can't find these books that have been done. And what I wanted to do was to write an omnibus guide this book picks 50 films writes about them in depth there's also five interviews with directors you know, with every film there's a suggested double feature so that gives you a chance to bring in another 50 films so it's a pretty good roundup of what's out there and by the way if there hasn't been a book about this in 25 or 30 years you can imagine all the films that have come out since then that haven't been dealt with haven't been written about so i felt like there was a lot there And the idea of doing it with TCM just seemed to make a lot of sense.
1: Where do you start with a book like this? Is it as simple as just sitting down and watching any movie that has a rock and roll connection? What was the research process like?
0: That's a good question. What happens is, in my case, the first thing I did was sit down and make a list of films that I thought, first of all, would have to be in this book. And second of all, films that I wanted to talk to people about that might not be in this book. Think about things that have been in the public and dropped out of public view. and Maybe there are films that people have forgotten about that should be talked about. So what I did was I basically made lists and looked at things like the Halliwell Guides and went through all kinds of different resources, trying to make sure you weren't going to miss anything too obvious. You do widow out things that you personally just don't care for. It becomes a personal thing. And I say very much up front in the book that I don't expect everybody to agree with the 50 films that I've picked. But I try to make a case for those also to make it be fun and inclusive and to really get a sweep of what this is. You do wind up watching a lot more movies than you're going to write about. And some of them are god awful. (laughs) Um, But that's part of it. It's fun, too.
1: Was there a movie that for time or the way you were going that you wanted to include, but you just couldn't make work?
0: There are a few films that are very difficult to find. There's a good film, and I mentioned it in passing, called That'll Be the Day with David Essex and Ringo Starr. And there's a follow-up to it called Stardust, in which the Essex character makes it as a big rock star. And it's impossible to see. I couldn't get a copy of it. It's also interesting to see what hasn't been available. Prior to this get-back-six-hours-Beetle thing that was just done, Mm -hmm. you could not see Let It Be. The last time Let It Be was released was on video cassette. It never been on DVD or CD. There were things like that, that that are surprising. You have to go to the public library if you want a copy of the concert for Bangladesh. That kind of thing.
1: Rock in film, for most people who maybe have seen Blackboard Jungle or A Hard Day's Night, it's obvious what rock and film is like, right? You get rock stars or you have this usage of rock music. But when you're writing something like this and you're finding themes... You're putting this together. What stands out to you about how rock in film has been utilized and changed over the decades?
0: Well, that's great. That is really what the book is about. In my mind, there are three essential types of rock films. They fall into three characters. One is the commercial story film, Like a Hard Day's Night. The other one is the documentary. And then there's a stepchild of those two, which is the Hollywood biopic. Under those three are 95% of all the rock and roll movies. And I make the case in the book that really, you have this early stuff like Blackboard Jungle or Go Johnny Go or The Girl Can't Help It. There's jukebox musicals. And it isn't until A Hard Day's Night that it really takes up. And part of my theme in the book is that A Hard Day's Night and the documentary Don't Look Back about Bob Dylan are the Adam and Eve of rock and roll movies. All the DNA and all the films that come afterwards come out of those two. It's either an original Comedy drama, a la Our Day's Night, or it's a documentary. And this stepchild, but that's really where it gets modernized in the mid '60s. These two black and white flashes of rock and roll lightning, really.
1: That's amazing. We have Elvis, another mm-hmm. Elvis biopic that is making a lot of money. We had Bohemian Rhapsody a couple years ago that got an Oscar. We're going back to jukebox musicals in a way, but it feels like we're blending and condensing a lot of stuff. Well,
0: I have to tell you, I haven't seen the Elvis movie yet, this new version, but if I had to imagine in my mind, what film am I going to be comparing this to? It's actually the one that we're talking about today. Because in my mind, I'm thinking about the directors, Ken Russell and Baz Luhrmann, and how they're going to approach these subjects. They are very unique directors, very eccentric directors, they're going to take their subject where they want to go. <laughs> and by the way, Ken Russell was fairly light-handed in his treatment of Tommy compared to what he did with the classical composers he loved. He made biopics of many, many classical music composers, and they're so wild, some of them. The one he made with Roger Daltrey right after about Franz Liszt, Lisztomania. it really makes Tommy look pale.
1: <laughs> I must admit, if, if people go back and listen to our 2021 new discoveries, the movies that we discovered last year that we love, Listomania was my number one movie that I discovered last year. I actually love it so much and it's <laughs> bonkers. I tried to describe it to my co-host and she was like, that doesn't sound like a real movie. That sounds like a fake movie that somebody invented. And I was like, no, it's a real movie that exists in the world.
0: He was an extraordinary unique director, and he always followed his own thing. He had a period in his career later on where he was really out of vogue and was literally making movies in his home to keep making movies. Russell, he had a fantastic eye and a tremendous imagination, and he didn't use kid gloves. So you get these wall things, and this would remind me if I said, who's Baz Luhrmann like? Ken Russell is somebody you would think of.
1: It's interesting to look at this in something like Ken Russell's biopic on Valentino, Mm -hmm. which was several years later. And that movie is also very loose on authenticity and high on style. It's certainly an interesting way of looking at an actor that I think has just become so steeped in myth and fable like Elvis has become.
0: And yet these people who are steeped in myth, he loves them. And, He did one on Richard Strauss that the family went berserk over. The film couldn't be shown for many decades. You still can't see lots of luck seeing his kind of of the devils. Oh, yeah. One of the famous. He was really, really something. But he's a bit of a character. One of my favorite things that I had learned about him was on his film, The Music Lovers, he sold it to the studios as the story of a nymphomaniac who falls in love with a homosexual. (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) you know i guess he understood the movie industry
1: i hope that somebody would say oh you never sell a movie like that that honest nowadays i think you might somebody might have a way to sell a movie that is that blunt in the industry today
0: they call it high concept
1: (laughs) oh yes definitely high concept because it is my birthday episode we are of course talking about 1975's tommy written and directed by ken russell based off of Pete Townsend's rock opera of the same name, with The Who in fine form, telling out the story of Tommy Walker, played by Roger Daltrey, who, as a child, witnesses his father's murder and becomes a nonverbal, deaf, becomes a messiah figure. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of beans and chocolate sauce. Anne Margaret plays his mother. Oliver Reed plays his stepfather various rock icons show up and do a bunch of crazy things. This movie, I saw before Listomania, and it took me two times for me to really be like, oh, okay, I get what's going on here. And it's definitely, as a wheelchair user, I tell people all the time, from a disabled perspective, it is really, really hard to watch because Roger Daltrey, of course, is not deaf. He's not nonverbal. It's 1975, I can't really fault him. Everybody played disabled people. People still do that. But the movie really situates him, quote-unquote, as deaf, dumb, and blind. He spends a lot of the movie just standing there reacting or not reacting to things. From that perspective, I got to compartmentalize because outside of that, it is just an utterly wild, crazy story that I could be completely off my net here, but says a lot about how we, oddly enough, exploit the disabled for our own gain. To look at this just from a rock perspective, the fact that The Who could get a movie made and do what they did, it's just a lesson in that old movie thing that we love where it was like, buddy can be an actor. You were once an Olympic swimmer, we'll give you all these movies. You ice skated, we'll give you a movie. You were a rock star, doesn't matter if you can act, we're going to give you a movie. I love that element because that doesn't happen today. Maybe... LeBron James can star in movies, but that does not happen as frequently as it used to. Fred, do you remember watching this for the first time when it came out? Because I can't even fathom seeing this at that time in the mid-70s, let alone watching it maybe on home video in the 80s or 90s. I experienced this in the 2010s on TCM.
0: Well, it's really interesting that you ask it from that perspective, because obviously, as someone who came at it, from the record bought the record when it came out in 1969 one of the first rock concerts i went to was to see the who performed tommy at the fillmore east in new york
1: i am incredibly jealous
0: and by the way the ticket was three and a half dollars
1: because of course it was
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful the sensation of the movie was not really knowing how to feel about it when i saw it because in my mind tommy was the recorded opera by The Who, their live performance. It was a rock and roll experience. And the rock and roll experience that comes up on the screen had less to do with The Who and the kind of music that they made and the kind of image that they projected. With the glitter thing that came later, the Elton John piece of it is really closer to the heart and the thing that Ken Russell does than really what The Who do. But when you look at it now, those things that was so strange, they worked much better. The church scene with the Marilyn Monroes, it has aged really well. When you watch it now, it just seems brilliant in a way that at the time I was maybe head scratching myself. There are things about this film that, A, if you came at this from the rock and roll side, you might have felt, well, I'm not sure this was made for me, particularly. But when you look at it now, it's good. It stands on its own, and that's the way I've come to feel about it.
1: The concept of taking a piece of music and translating it into a story. I know reading Roger Daltrey's autobiography, he talks a lot about Pete Townsend's creation of this operetta and translating it for a rock scene, which, by the way, finding Tommy on vinyl is still incredibly difficult, or at least not cheap. I have not been (laughs) able to secure a cheap copy, at least cheap by vinyl standards to know that Robert Stigwood was like, sales is
0: the answer, by the
1: way. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I usually do. Robert Stigwood produced this, which if you yeah. listen to our last episode we did on Greece, Robert Stigwood right. really had his finger on the pulse of rock at that time, or at least trying to find ways to make money oh, off. By,
0: of. by the way, managed Eric Clapton.
1: Yes. So talk about this, and then just a couple years later, Greece, which is a very mm-hmm. different portrayal of rock music. Right. You could have only made this in 75, because by 78 there seems to be this turn back to a nostalgizing rock in that way that would continue into the 1980s. Am I off track?
0: Well, I don't think you're off track. The Grease thing certainly is a nostalgia trip. But don't forget also that Grease comes after Saturday Night Fever. Very you know, true. Which was another Stigwood film and before the Stigwood disaster, which was Sgt. Pepper's. Oh, yeah. It was great, great, and then what happened? <laughs> it was the story of RSO. Stigwood does well in this. I understand Stigwood is the reason was the person who wanted Russell as the director. And you've probably read as I have that the reports that it was offered to George Lucas,
1: which Lucas, gosh, I don't even know what that would look like. Maybe it might be a bit more coherent, but you need a director like Ken Russell who understands the gaudiness just the concept of opera, you hear that word and you think over the top, very in your face, you need somebody that can work with that. And I'm sure, you know, Ken Russell didn't like rock music. He didn't right. really care for their right. music at all, but he wanted to make a movie about a Messiah figure. So well, you know, it. it's
0: fascinating too, because my take, and I write about this in the book is that you can't really tell if he heard a lot in the record or nothing, Ken Russell. And it's really fascinating because. He gave that same gloves-off treatment to the composers we know for a fact that he loved. It doesn't change what he does. He's always outrageous. He's got this sense of the artistic drive and what this self-discovery thing is all about that is really the essence of every one of his films. And what it is is
1: forever twisted. And this is a movie that starts with, in a very big way, with a couple that are very much in love The man goes off to war and then he comes back after several years and is murdered by accident, which it's a way to set up the story where you understand the character. These are characters that in the wrong hands could be very hard to sympathize with. Russell gives the audience little glimpses at these characters' true feelings, especially Anne-Margaret as the mom, which I noticed in rewatching it recently that there's so much. In the way she's dressed or the way her makeup is, that can tell her mental state throughout Mm -hmm. the entire movie, Mm -hmm. where you really do sympathize with her. She's devolving into this person. The concept that she starts out with no makeup and then has a ton of makeup on her face by the end of it. It's a very un Anne Margaret performance. I love that Russell plays with all of these different ways to. Avoid having to stop the music and turn it into a movie. He's got to find a way to tell a movie structure within all the music that is on screen.
0: I have a couple of reactions, and I agree with everything you're saying. The first thing that I would mention is there's one significant plot change in the story, and that is in the original opera, the original husband comes back and they kill the boyfriend. Yeah. Okay. And in the movie, it's the new husband who stays. It's the Oliver Reed character which is going to move the family in a different direction because he's kind of shifty. He's not a war hero, he's a hustler. Yeah. So that's a significant thing. When I sat down to watch this again after not having seen it for years, I'm a fan of Anne-Margaret. But my thought is that Oliver Reed has made many films with Ken Russell. Ken Russell is gonna be expecting him to do the heavy lifting in this film. And it's Anne-Margaret who does the heavy lifting. She carries this film, and you go and you look at some of the things. I mean, and it's interesting because she's it's almost unremarked. She's reunited with Jack Nicholson, who she was with in yep. Colonel Knowledge a few years earlier. She's tremendous in that. And she's also the star of one of my favorite B movies, 52 Pickup, with Roy Scheider, which is a wonderful Oh, yeah, that's a great Leonard. one. That's a fantastic B movie. And she's excellent in it. She's someone who really don't think got enough parts because whenever she gets a significant part, she handles it. It's true. And one of the other things that struck me watching this is, and it's certainly not in the original Who version of Tommy, because she becomes such a centerpiece, very much of this film seems to be a meditation on her sexuality and her sense of desire, which was nowhere near what the Who did. That's all her. That's all Ken Russell.
1: It's surprising to watch this, rewatch Viva Las Vegas, because it's all Elvis all the time now in our society. To rewatch that, And then watch this. It's such a stark transition, but it really is almost a weirdly appropriate transition because Anne-Margaret has talked about she was coined a sex kitten and did have to play those types of roles that often did utilize just the camera staring at her backside or she's a chest in the frame or something. And even though she does do some great work, the directors really did underestimate her.
0: She's earnestly charming in that as well. I mean, aside from the sex kitten thing, don't forget that was a hugely successful film. And it's the only one in which Elvis had a true co star.
1: Definitely. Definitely. She
0: is very important to that film. I don't think she's really gotten the kind of assessment.
1: She really hasn't. She was Oscar nominated for this, which a lot of people are surprised by because when people hear about this movie, and I've talked about it to other people, they say, oh, it's the movie where Anne Margaret's rolling around in beans and chocolate sauce. I'm like, no, there's far more to the movie than that, but we should give her an Oscar for being game enough to do that. She didn't have to. She could have had a stunt double, but she did it herself. So good on Anne. To come into Ken Russell's world and hold your own against Oliver Reed, who was Ken Russell's right hand in so many of his films, to dominate in a way, it's not a question of Anne being too good for Oliver Reed's character. It's the other way around. You understand why they're together but watching just how good she is in this movie it's like dude you should be afraid of how good she is yeah well,
0: to- it's interesting because the, the film is very much skewed towards her character you, you know how films work if it wasn't there in the daily rushes they would have changed it but oliver reed it could have been anybody frankly
1: if you're a fan of everything we do here at the show old hollywood classic film pop culture Consider subscribing like these wonderful patrons, Peter Blitzstein, Laura Stalker, and Foster, and Harry Holland. Our Patreon page is located at patreon.com ticklishbiz. If we can reach 30 subscribers, you'll be treated to a full episode looking at the 1976 TV biopic Gable and Lombard. We're looking forward to posting a deep dive into one of Kristen's most infamous classic quote-unquote films. Does Love Truly Mean Never Having to Say You're Sorry?, if we get to 100 subscribers, you'll get to hear all our opinions on Love Story. Meanwhile, we have all sorts of special content, including our dual shows, doubled features, and based on a true podcast. Patrons also get access to special buttons, as well as free DVDs and Blu-rays. Visit our Patreon at patreon.com ticklishbiz. Hopefully, we'll see you in our Patreon winner's circle soon. Now, back to the show. I've seen Oliver Reed in a bunch of different things. This is also a chance for him to do a little something different too. He's got to be smaller. Mm. He's definitely playing this grinning huckster character, but he's definitely got to be the guy that is just smarmy and you don't really like him, but there's not a lot to him. He's very much a character that you're not supposed to like, but you're also not supposed to really care about in the grand scheme of things, which is very un ollie Reed.
0: Well, in any event, she looms gigantic, bigger than Tommy. That's really sort of the deal.
1: It really undoes the stereotype. One of the things I noticed on social media, people discovering this for the first time when TCM aired it, was people commenting on Anne margarets not wearing a lot of makeup. That's why she got the Oscar. The stereotype that, oh, hot women who go plain right. get the Oscar now continues to undermine the type of work she's been doing as a performer her entire career. Because, yes, she's beautiful, of course. But at the same time, Russell understood that we don't need to swath her in a lot of stuff. We can, but we yeah. don't need to because she's just that good a performer. And that, of course, brings us to Roger Daltrey, which I do think that Anne margaret was really the only woman that I could believe would have given birth to Roger <laughs> Daltrey. Though I think they said there's not a huge age difference. It's just a couple of years.
0: Well, yeah, it's about three years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's Hollywood for you. Yeah. <laughs> Roger Daltrey's acting debut. We all know if you listen to this podcast long enough. I love him. He can do no wrong in my eyes. To watch this and then watch Listomania back to back. You're, this is like the one for them, one for me principle. Weirdly enough, <laughs> where he gets to do this movie where he's not really reliant on like being Roger Daltrey, so that he can do Listomania, which is all about him being Roger right, Daltrey. It's right, right. also really good in this. Again, the character is a bit hard for me to deal with from a disabled perspective it's a very 1970s portrayal of being nonverbal and deaf this is not patty duke in the miracle worker at all which has its own problems but i think it does really well in terms of making you care about the character it would be very easy to just be like oh he's deaf and he's nonverbal how sad that happens a lot in disabled films go oh, it's so sad how tragic You must inspire us to be better people the movie does that which I really yeah. appreciated, you know, yes, he becomes a messianic figure right. and his disabilities are cured, but the movie's saying something a lot deeper than just saying, oh, we have these magic bullets and he's a Christ-like figure because he was once disabled. It's doing something different. I can't put my finger on what it is. Though.
0: Townsend, he's more interested in the of it than in portraying and talking about what it is to be disabled, because he essentially does the same thing and plays fast and loose in a similar way in Quadrophenia, where he's playing off of the popular notion that schizophrenia, that its definition is a split personality. That's the pop definition that you have two personalities that schiz- which is not what it is. He uses it to come up with Quadrophenia. Although there's four personalities. But of course, one of the things he's up to there is talking about his band, The Who for personalities in search of a unified identity. He does these things for poetic and artistic license more than to deal with these things as reality, whether it's psychological or physical or what have you. I'm not a disabled person. Gladly, I'm not diagnosed as schizophrenic, so I don't have any sort of thing with this. And by the way, before we move off this, I would ask you, have you seen the Ian Dury biopic, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll?
1: I have not.
0: Which you should, because he was a polio survivor. And he had his whole life built around the fact that he can't really walk. He was brought up in this Victorian institution where if you fell on the floor, you had to get up yourself. And it made him very strong and it made him very bitter. And it also put him at the forefront of disability rights. He got into huge fights with the BBC. Over a record he made called Spasticus Autisticus that was based on Spartacus, where everybody's yelling Spasticus. (laughs) He was really fascinating. It's a very, very good film. It's called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. And what's his name is in it? Who did Gollum?
1: Oh, Andy Uh, Serkis. Andy
0: Serkis. He's magnificent in it. Uh,
1: Okay, I got to add that to the list. And and by the way, I,
0: I had spoken to somebody recently whose brother had been a roadie for Ian Dury and said that. When he watched Andy Circus, he couldn't believe it, wasn't he?
1: That's amazing. Okay, so, yeah. I'm adding that. So, yeah. yay. To talk about this as being a reflection of The Who, in 1975, it's a big deal to see a rock group like them making a movie like this. It's interesting to watch this along with something like another documentary, like The Song Remains the Same yeah. with Led Zeppelin. In sharing this movie with friends of mine, there's this weird belief that every rock band of that time period made their Hard Day's Night. Tommy's just the Who's Hard Day's Night. What did it take for a rock band in this time to get a narrative feature as opposed to a documentary?
0: That's an interesting question. There were a lot of films, especially in the wake of Hard Day's Night, and we don't watch them and for good reasons. Surprisingly, the best of the imitators is the Dave Clark Five film. Yes. Which is known as either catch us if you can or having a wild weekend, depending on where you get your copy. And that was directed by John Borman. And it's a very intelligent and a little bit different from the everything that became the monkeys that comes out of a hard day's night, that thing. There was also a lot of money flowing into these films. And people made films because they thought they were going to get a hard day's night, and they wind up instead with performance. And don't know what to do with it and that happens a couple of times in this case stigwood is the known quantity to the who he's been around a long time he'd been an associate of brian epstein's he managed cream he managed the Bee Gees. he's a music and film impresario and he's a good guy to do this ken russell's a wild card and it's interesting to see all the directors who are looking for work I don't know if you'd say Ken Russell's looking for work at that time. I think it was pretty in demand. But the fact that John Borman is making films with the Dave Clark Five, guy who's going to go on to make great films like Deliverance, or one of the worst films I saw in doing this book was Good Times with Sonny and Cher. The first di-
1: okay, that sounds amazingly terrible.
0: <laughs> the first directorial job by William Friedkin scarier than The Exorcist. No, it's <laughs> 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 Don't watch it, you know, is my advice to you.
1: What we're saying, too, is that much like a Sonia Henney ice skater turned actress or an Esther Williams swimmer turned actress, you just needed to be able to be an actor. And I think that there was this belief at that time that, well, if you're on stage, you are acting, you know, is there was this an, element of that.
0: There's an interesting piece to this. I talked to John Waters, who was one of the directors I interviewed for the book. And I said, you know, you've used a lot of musicians throughout your life. And he said, well, I've always used singers. He says, because they perform every night on stage. This is nothing new to them. They have this character that they play every night. And essentially that's what you see in these movies whether you're talking about Purple Rain or Elvis Presley. Purple Rain, not a great film, but my God, the last 15 minutes when he gets to be Prince, it's unbelievable. It's that sort of thing. By the way, you talk about the Sonia Henny or I don't know whether your Olympic reference was to Johnny Weissmuller or to yeah, yeah. style, but That's, either way, either you know, <laughs> it, it works. Today, the question is, well, would you be casting a Kardashian? What is that invented persona that you play in public?
1: Roger Daltrey would go on and continue to act here and there throughout the years, but Pete Townsend never became no, an actor. No. Keith Moon died, so that never and happened. he
0: wanted to act. Once... He's in two hundred motels. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we do see other other performer Tina Turner's in this. Elton John Did Ringo fantasy, Star had a long
0: career in film.
1: You can definitely see people having that persona in this movie, where you're like, oh, I wish Tina Turner had made more movies. She's definitely got something in this. 10-minute performance as the ass queen when she shows up. It's all that Tina persona I love seeing. And
0: you get that a lot in these films, whether it's Iggy Pop or Joe Strummer. Even Courtney Love was in a couple of films, and she's essentially being Courtney Love, and it works. As John Waters said, they play this character every night. That's right there, and to be used by a director who's intelligent to this stuff. It does take someone who's savvy and has followed this world to understand how they fit into what they're doing.
1: People that remember this movie remember the Pinball Wizard sequence, which is great. Elton John on stilts, which is such great fun. I know that up until, I'm going to not confess about how quickly I realized this, but most people remember the Elton John version of Pinball Wizard before they remember the Who actually did the original. And it took me a long time to realize that.
0: It was a big hit off the film. And Elton John, of course, going through one of his apex periods. It's great. The Who you know, are enormously popular rock and roll band selling on stadiums at one point, but they never had the reach of Elton John. And that I think put them in a pop context that despite their yes, they had a couple of hit records like Happy Jack and I Could See for Miles, but they were never really a radio act like Elton John was.
1: Of course, we know Roger Daltrey and Ken Russell reteamed. Very quickly after this, for yeah. Listomania, which I did love that reading Roger Daltrey's autobiography, he talks about slightly less briefly about this movie than he does The Legacy, which only has one line in his autobiography, <laughs> which is like Richard Marquand directed it. He was a good director. End of sentence. That's all yeah. he talks about The Legacy. But he talks about Listomania as they hoped to continue this fruitful relationship. And he wanted to be like Oliver Reed in that regard, an actor in Ken Russell's stable. And the movie did not work. Why do you think Tommy is is the better of the two? I would argue, I don't know if it's the better of the two, but why do audiences respond to this and not that? First
0: of all, the question is, who's going to go to a movie about Franz Liszt? Right?
1: True, okay. We, we,
0: we know who's <laughs> going to go to a movie about Tommy, right? But the person who we think might go to a movie about Franz Liszt is going to have that what-the-heck-is-this look on their face as soon as the film starts. Is this the same guy who did this to me on the Wagner movie?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a stretch to see The Who and a bunch of Marilyn Monroes and then watch another yeah. movie where Roger Daltrey is writing on a 12-foot penis. It's definitely a, a change. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't
0: seem to make movies for anyone but himself, actually. And that's not a bad thing to do if you have a particular aesthetic. An aesthetic that people can relate to. I assume that the people that he made these films for, and he started out making the bios for the BBC, and they got wilder and wilder as it went on. I don't think the audience went with him, the classical audience, the rock and roll audience went with him to a much greater extent on Tommy, I think. This is not why anybody's going to see a movie about Franz Liszt to see him as a rock star riding a 12 foot penis.
1: People have not given Listomania a chance. It's a lot of fun up until. The third act, when it turns into Marxism, Nazism, right. the well, Superman, all of that. It's a theme he comes
0: back to. I mean, yeah. in the Wagner film, and the Strauss film, I haven't seen, he did a pair of horror films. The Lair of the White Worm and Gothic. Yeah, And I'm very curious to see at this point how he did those.
1: I've seen Gothic because the masters in English, you're required to see anything that has the literary connection. Right. It's been several years, but I remember it feeling like it was certainly Ken Russell far more restrained oh. than he seemed to be. It's certainly got a more coherent narrative. I know people that love Lair the White Worm and I need to see it at some point. I need to get all the Ken Russell films that I've not seen watched. There's several and I'm very interested in them. Tommy did very well at the box office nominated for Best Actress and Best Score. Neither one of them won, although Anne Margaret did win a Golden Globe, which was great. I noticed that Roger Ebert wrote in his review of the movie at the time that he was a bit upset that the message of the movie is muddled and hypocritical. I've seen this movie several times now, and I don't really know if I know what the message is. I'm interested in asking you, Fred, does Tommy have a message?
0: My vibe. Watching it, obviously, the film has changed a bit at the end. It's a bit more optimistic than the record. And I think what they're really getting at in the film is the notion that don't go with organized religions, go inside yourself. Tommy had a message, and it gets weighed down in the biz that everybody's putting up behind them and to keep Anne Margaret in furs or whatever she's in this week. (laughs) So it's really that, uh, which is pretty straightforward and not exactly a revelation. No religions, just yourself. Its meaning is apparent, not too deep.
1: Some movies, that's all you really want. Yeah. We just want now, to look at Roger Daltrey's great hair for by know, the too. way.
0: I prefer personally Quadrophenia as a film. Which okay. Is, which I think is really in some ways a much more expansive piece of movie making. It took the record and instead of sticking with the record, it turned it into a movie. It's not an opera, nobody sings. It's a story that's told on the record. It's now told in a movie. And it really delves into some things about life in post-war Britain and the early days of rock and roll and what it is to grow up. Uh, quite beautiful. In some ways, it's a very successful film.
1: And in case people want to know who Anne-Margaret was up against at the Oscars that year for Best Actress, our nominees were Isabella Johnny for The Story of Adele H., Glenda Jackson for Hedda, Carol Kane for Hester Street, and... Do you know the winner, Fred, offhand of the Oscars that year?
0: Not a chance.
1: It was Louise Fletcher for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So well, I'm not going to lie. You're not yeah. going to get over on Nurse Ratched. So, you know, <laughs> I get it. I Yeah, get
0: it. you know, bring back Cousin Kevin if you have to deal with, with Nurse Ratched. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we didn't even talk about. That's the biggest thing that I noticed rewatching the movie this time around is I was like, oh, Not only is it about the exploitation of disabled person, but there is a lot of weird sexual manipulation in this movie that I did not remember.
0: Well, you know, and also the notion that homosexuality is a perversion. There's a bit where he's reading some sort of underground magazine and it's clearly skewed towards gay readers. He's presented as the pervert, the sadistic pervert. None of that stuff would get done today.
1: no no and that's the thing when i talked on twitter about people should watch tommy it's great a lot of people jumped in and were like oh it's very weird it's not good it's dated they had a lot of complaints about it it's why we do this podcast there are certainly all classic films in a way have the themes of the time whether out of date or not part of why we engage with cinema is to Look at the flaws and hope that we have grown from them. When it comes to disability, I'd say we haven't. But in other cases like that, we've certainly come a long way from the 1975 view of the LGBTQ community, thankfully.
0: Even on a broader context, what you're saying is true because regardless of whether you're the smallest independent or the biggest major in the world, nobody sits down and says, the audience is going to stay away now, but 40 years from now, they're going to love this. No one makes that.
1: Fred, anything else you want to touch on about Tommy before we start closing it
0: out? The film survives in its own sort of little bubble. It's one of those films you can complain about it like Pink Floyd, The Wall. It's got problems, right? Major problems, Pink Floyd, The Wall. But there are things about it that you just never forget. And it's the same in some ways with Tommy. Visually, it's so unique. God bless Ken Russell. He was a raving lunatic. (laughs) And it's funny about... Two months ago, TCM also showed The Boyfriend, you know, with Twiggy. And when you watch that, it's incredible. Every shot is like a photograph. Russell, he wanted to be a fashion photographer, and he was a very talented photographer. And you can especially see it in a movie like that. The clarity of images is just exceptional. And there's a lot of that in Tommy as well. It is its own story.
1: We talk about movies that could never be made today. And we usually talk about that in terms of outdated themes with regards to race or sexual orientation or stuff like that. We also don't talk about movies that wouldn't be made just because they're so esoteric or weird. The Ken Russell aesthetic. I don't mm-hmm. think we'd get something like that today outside of like a Bos Like, Well, humanity.
0: there are the Bos who are going to do this stuff. And the fact that there's still room for these people to make films that everybody's going to go, what was that, is at least cheering to me. I might not want to watch them, but I'm glad they're here.
1: I will say, if we have to put up with Tom Hanks and a gallon of makeup and prosthetics as Colonel Tom Parker, so you can be reminded that Boz Lerman is at least trying to give us the Ken Russell vibe in 2022, I feel it has been worth it. Okay. <laughs> Fred, it's been so great talking to you today. Of course, your book, Rock on Film, is now out wherever you people buy books nowadays. It's great. Definitely check it out. Where can fans find you on social media? How can they get in touch? I, well, Any I, of that. you know, I'm,
0: I'm around. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Although I must confess, I'm not a big social media guy. I am on email and I'm easy to find. So if you want to get in touch with me, feel free. But it was fun to do Rock on Film. I would encourage people to take a look in there. We've just talked today about a sliver of what to me is a very wide world that encompasses the weird and the wonderful and the familiar and the strange. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun to talk.
1: That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, Ticklish Business is on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave us a review because they really help get eyeballs on the show. If you want to support us over at Patreon, at patreon.com slash we have all sorts of bonus content, including our bonus shows, Double Features, and Based on a True Podcast, as well as our six-week series, Being Elvis. You can listen to all six of those episodes now. We have our recent episode on Against All Odds of Double Features with the Fatal Attractions crew. And we have our episode on Grease 2 with the Descends a Prom team. So if you enjoyed our thoughts on Greece, you can check out our thoughts on Greece too. We will be talking at the end of the month about the new Marilyn Monroe biopic, Blonde. I have opinions. Help us out to also get our goals funded. We want to do some more merchandise and do episodes on Love Story and Gable and Lombard. Samantha would love to see a godfather, any godfather. You can learn more over at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Please be sure to follow us over on Twitter at Wish underscore biz, as well as TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. We just wrapped up our Summer Under the Stars contest over on Twitter and gave someone some great original artwork that Samantha crafted. So we're doing a lot of stuff. Be sure to follow us. We will be back next time with a new episode soon. Till then.